everyone, this is your host, Dubs Weinblatt. The episode you're about to listen to was recorded earlier this year before the coronavirus pandemic. It can be a little strange listening to conversations before we knew a lot of what we know today, but we really enjoyed these episodes and wanted to share them with you. We hope you enjoy them too. Thank you for coming Thank you for coming out. Welcome. My name is Dubs Weinblatt. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm so excited to be here. In 2015, I founded the queer improv show, Thank You for Coming Out, or TIFCO as we call it, and it is now one of the longest-running queer improv shows in New York City. During the show, our storytellers share their coming out stories, and then our improvisers bring them to life. Our podcast is a little different. We have a storyteller share their stories, but instead of folks improvising, we talk about them. And I am super duper pumped about our guest uh, that we have here with us today, um, Louis Perlman. He, him pronouns. Hi, Louis. Hi, Dubs. I'm very happy to be here. I'm so happy you're here. Yeah, this is awesome for me. This is definitely an honor because I love all the work that you're doing and I think it's all really important. So Thank you. That's yeah. so nice. Stop. Stop flattering. I know. I flattered you. Before we rolled, I said that you had a really good voice for podcasts. You're like, oh, I, I don't know if I could go on anymore. Oh. I'm like, my cheeks are all red. That's so sweet. Thanks, Louie. And of I, and you've been such a, a light for me and one of my like improv mentors and friends since the very beginning. So I'm very appreciative of you too. Thank you. Yeah. I've been very happy to be able to fill that role for mm. you for sure. Mm. Yeah. Um, and we'll talk more about that in sure. a little bit. But, um, we all have multiple coming out stories. Yes. Um, and so I would love to hear one of yours. Sure. I mean, I'm sort of in prep for this podcast. I was sort of just thinking about when I consider when were the big moments that I came out of the of the closet. And definitely, you know, for me, a lot of the major ones happened during my late teens. I grew up in the uh, – I was in my late teens in the late 90s in Calgary, Alberta, in Western Canada. And at the time, uh, it was a fairly conservative place to grow up. Uh, and certainly the adults around me were quite conservative. I definitely remember encountering some homophobia and uh, bigoted attitudes that were really casual in my teachers that I had at the – absolutely lovely and have since done a very, very good job becoming very inclusive. A private school that I went to in in Western Canada, I went to a school called Strathcona and Tweedsmere School, which is in rural, like right outside of Calgary. It's between Calgary and Okotoks. Okotoks is a small town. Oh my gosh, wait. <laughs> yeah. Okay, no, I'm going to, never mind. Yeah, Keep so, telling your story. <laughs> so, uh, and definitely there was some casual homophobia from some of the students and from some of the teachers there. Um, and then, however, I had surrounded myself with a really robust group of friends, many of whom I'm still very much in touch with, who helped me feel brave enough to come out of the closet. And it turned out that I wasn't the only queer member of my, you know, graduating class. Uh, but I was in a pretty small class. I was in a class graduated of like 60 people. Hmm. Um, but I was the only one that when I was a teenager felt like comfortable enough to, to come out of the closet as a, as a teenager. Um, so that, you know, I thought that was, that's sort of interesting, but I think it really is a testament to the friends that were around me and the friends that, you know, really wanted me to be happy and were really proud of every step that I, I took. So I remember beginning to come out to them, uh, at, you know, I remember like specifically a bush party where we were all drinking, which was a very Western Canadian way to come out and talking to a bunch of friends about it and them all being very supportive of me and very, you know, actually rather excited for me. And then I remember it was like about a month after I had turned 17. Um, so it was February of 1998 and just having this like, moment at a party once again where I just knew that I wasn't being truthful with enough people who I loved and feeling really, really, really down on myself about it. And I remember specifically 
sitting with two of my friends from high school who are really dear to me, Andrea Ryer and Matt Diskin, and he's saying, you know, I don't really like who I've become. Like, I don't, I don't really like who I am anymore. And they were like, well, uh, we think you're wonderful. So something needs to change here if that's the way you're feeling. That was sort of the conversation that we had. And then the next day, I woke up very early. I marched downstairs to my den in my room or in my in my house and watched my VHS of Rocky Horror Picture Show. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then my parents came down and they were like, "What's up? What's wrong? Why were you up so early?" And I was like, "I have something to tell you." And you know, I just came out and said, "You know, I'm I'm gay," which is how I identified at the time. I don't know if I still totally identify as gay. I sort of you sort of think I fall a little more under the queer umbrella, despite the fact that I uh, pretty much exclusively uh, am attracted to men. But I feel like gay in 2002 or 2002, gay in 2002, <laughs> gay in 2002 did have a certain connotations, but gay in 2020 has connotations as well that like I don't think totally describe me. Mm-hmm. But at the time, you know, I came out as gay and, um, you know, there was high emotions for my parents. Uh, something that I always gravitate back towards because I love it. You know, my parents, just to describe them for a little bit, were very forward thinking, very liberal, very open minded, uh, especially for that time in Calgary. Um, it was the it was the late 90s. I feel like they would not be mad if I said that they were casually homophobic. They were casually somewhat racist. Um, it was sort of the attitude that was like, well, we can make these jokes because they're not hurting anybody because those people aren't hearing them, you know, which is like definitely an attitude that I think we've all evolved on and certainly my family has <laughs> very much so. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it still came as a great shock to them. And of course, I think you're really confronted about your core values and your levels of acceptance when you are confronted with someone you love very much revealing something about themselves that you weren't expecting. And they weren't expecting it from me, despite the fact that I loved theater. I was really an artsy kid. I was obsessed with Rocky Horror at the time. There were lots of hints that I was dropping that they were not picking up on. (laughs) They were really quite shocked. Um, And huge emotions from them. Huge they sort of went through all these stages that you go through that a lot of families go through over the course of several months or several years. They went through them in the course of about four hours. There was some like, uh, there was crying. There was, no, you can't be that way. I won't allow you to be that way. There was, well, if that's the way you are, I'm going to kick you out of the house. That happened. And I was like, okay, you know, I'll, I'll go stay with my grandparents. Like, and they were like, uh, and they were like, well, you can't go to college if this is the way you think you are. We want to keep you here and keep you safe. And then that sort of was the progression as it turned into, we want to keep you here and we want to keep you safe. Like, it was like, oh, we're actually concerned about your safety. Oh, that's the primary thing that we're so, you know, screwed up about and we're so freaked out about. And, and definitely, um, you know, there was so much stigma at the time. That I feel is in a lot of ways for like queer guys in my in New York in in 2020 in the last few years has really melted away like a lot of stigmas around HIV and that definitely came up during that initial conversation um, which I thought was really interesting you know my dad was all of a sudden like no you know you're gonna get AIDS that was like a big thing from him but really by the end of that conversation. It was very clear that we were all on the same page. That they were really just worried about my my safety. It was something they didn't know about me that was came as a surprise. They wanted to help me out to the best of their ability. Um, we did a great job. We uh, signed up for an appointment with a family therapist immediately. <laughs> that was so helpful. It was within that week that we started seeing a family therapist. We saw her three times and felt on the right track. And, and and the fallout from that is, unfortunately, and this is something I've talked about with my parents, like this won't be a surprise to them when they listen to this, this is still something that day definitely left an impact on me that I still feel like I'm working through. Mm-hmm. And that day was rough 
it was really fucking hard and was more than I think any 17-year-old should have to take on. However, relatively in the grand scheme of things, certainly it was not nearly as bad as it could have been. Mm -hmm. And like I feel like ultimately I I knew that I came out of that experience feeling – very supported and loved by family members, by really wonderful friends, and felt that way moving into my my life uh, as a you know as a college student because I you know graduated high school that year and then went to college and then went to university and then had to deal with um, a lot of homophobia um, with my roommate, my dorm mate in college, and my uh, my the people who lived on my floor in my dorm who were these like rural kids from British Columbia who like just had a really, you know, they just didn't know what to make of me. And it felt like such a backwards progression because all the kids that I went to high school with were like totally cool with me and were really happy with where I was at. And then these kids were like, who the fuck is this guy? Like, you know, all I want to do is hang out in my room. No, this is not me. I'm, I'm imitating one of them. It's like, all I want to do is hang out in my room and like learn the first you know, guitar riff of Sweet Child of Mine on the guitar really, really, really poorly, <laughs> which was like an entire thing I had to listen to for my entire first year of, mm-hmm. of university. <laughs> um, like they just were – we were just really coming from a different place and there weren't the structures in place to create inclusive environments, you know. And early in my second year of college, I remember – I had a pride sticker up on my door and someone wrote fag on the door and that completely freaked me out. Um, so it was hard. It was um, – that was all really tricky and I was certainly out to all my friends, um, you know, uh, in in college. Uh, but I held it close to the chest sort of when it came to acquaintances, um, which I don't think was good for me. Yeah, you know, I was a real late bloomer dating-wise, but I feel that's because I didn't have a lot of really encouraging um, early experiences, which I think is definitely part of my coming out story. I had a lot of uh, sort of infatuations with, like, queer young men who maybe skewed more towards dating women than men, and I decided that they were really important to me, and... My first kiss was with a guy uh, at summer camp when I was 16 who then ran away and dated a woman right away. And definitely that's still a segment of the population that I'm still like attracted to in a way that I think is not very healthy for me and something that I'm dealing with still in my late 30s because it left a real impression on me. But I'm like proud that at least I can acknowledge it now. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's my that's sort of that's sort of like stage one of like the coming out story was like that period. Um, but you know, coming out as uh, we talk about is something that happens every day and mm-hmm. something I'm going through probably for the rest of my life. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for sharing, Louis. My pleasure. <laughs> Oh, I have so many things. I know. That, that was wanna, a lot. That, that was I want to talk about. Big dump. Yeah. I hope that wasn't too much. <laughs> uh, no, I like when people take big dumps on this podcast. Great. Yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh. Greens. Should, maybe we'll edit that out. No, it's great. <laughs> okay. Eat your greens with every meal. Yeah. <laughs> Green leafies. <laughs> okay, before we get serious, I want to mm-hmm. talk about Okotoks. Okotokies? Sure. How do you say it? Okotoks. Okotoks. I just like that word. Yeah. It's what a just, fun word. It's a small town in rural Alberta. It has a beautiful tea house uh, and a really good ice cream store. Cool. If you ever need to visit Okotoks, Alberta. Yeah. yeah. It might be a little bigger there now than it was when I grew up there, but it was small when I grew up in in Calgary. It's such a fun word to say and like, Okotoks. Well, there's a lot of amazing places in that area that are mostly um, – Indigenous Canadian names, but roll off the tongue. Uh, there's also uh, Medicine Hat. Medicine Hat. And Carstairs. <laughs> yep. Yep. But don't two laugh. Word, don't two, be. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. Two two words? Carstairs? Wait, yeah. What? I, I think it's, yeah, but it's, it's you know, it's, it's, um, it's it's an indigenous language, you know. So so okay, okay. So it doesn't mean the stairs that lead up so to it's, a car. It's probably not even spelled the same way. No, no. So I take back my giggle. Totally, totally. 
You know, okay. we're learning. We're learning. <laughs> we are learning. Yeah. But that is... Nanaimo, that's in British Columbia. That's a beautiful word, Nanaimo. Yeah, yeah. that is. Yeah. Um, those are some of the ones that, you know, I grew up around that sort of ring top of my head. There's, was, there's a warm winter, a warm mountain winter breeze that blows through Calgary that's called a Chinook. Hmm. Isn't that a pretty word? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Chinook wind that would make everything, the temperature go up 10 degrees, you know, every once in a while in the wintertime during our bitterly cold winters. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I'm learning so many things. Yes. Cool. And the little Canadian rep, yeah. the Calgary rep <laughs> for this podcast. Um, okay. Uh, another question for you. Mm-hmm. What is a bush party? Yeah, well, that's when you like go out to the bush and you drink a lot. <laughs> so, like, is that the bush man? <laughs> is that so? That, that's like not bush the beer. So there's no C no, in it. Okay. no 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 B U S H a bush party. Yeah. Does does every town have its own bush or like is that is that specific to your community? You kind of figure out what where you can have your bush party. Mm-hmm. You know, there was one bush party that, you know, some of my friends had like farms or had like farmland. So then we'd like all drive out to the farm and then have a bush party at the farm. You know what I'm okay. saying? So um, it wasn't like a specific bush. It was like the no. act of going somewhere yes, to drink. was a bush party. Oh, Absolutely. Got it. Or, you know, like irresponsibly take mushrooms for not a good reason or mm-hmm. that that kind of stuff. I never did that. I didn't I didn't start dealing with psychedelics until I was a little older, until mm-hmm. I was in my like mid twenties or so. Um but yeah, I, I certainly drank a lot, which I don't do anymore. It's really bad for me. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of I don't miss it at all. I think it always made me sick and then I realized it was like really bad for me digestion wise, um and with some like chronic health stuff that I have. When I gave up drinking, I was like, oh this yes, this is clearly the right choice for me. That's great. Yeah, but I'm still a very happy um, stoner and mm-hmm. uh, feel like that's an important part of my identity. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Yeah. I definitely my drinking has slowed down, and I and every once in a while I I will forget that my I am old yeah, and that I yeah. can't recover nearly as quickly as I used to be able to. I Absolutely. can't drink as much, and so I'll have like probably a third of the drinks that I am like my mind thinks that I can have yes. and I still am so sick. Don't you feel that way sometimes also like when you haven't like you've gotten like one less hour of sleep than you normally get and you're yeah. like, oh, well, I'm dead today now. Mm-hmm. You know, like, yeah. And, and like, I can't sit up because my back totally. hurts. My knees are creaky. It's, that's, that's aging as well. <laughs> that's good stuff. Oh, it's wonderful. No, it's great. I, Aging's really cool. I I'm into it. Yeah. I was thinking about that this morning because I – was like feeling just like a really good rhythm at work. Mm-hmm. And I kind of like, I just like leaned back and I was like, I've, I like earned feeling that I know what I'm doing. Absolutely. And like, it just was like all of the work that I've been doing, like professionally yep. and just everything, it, it like kind of hit me that I was like doing the right thing at the right time and that I know uh, the, the imposter syndrome kind of melted away and I felt really confident. And that's it was wonderful. Really cool. Yeah, like I feel like for younger listeners of this podcast, something that's really awesome about getting into your, you know, I'd say really your 30s, and I'm currently my late 30s, getting into that stage, it's just that you have so much more of an idea as to what you really enjoy and what you don't enjoy. And that goes for social stuff, it goes for romantic stuff, it goes for professional stuff. And I think it really feels good mm-hmm. you know um my life i feel in the last few years has gotten like rather unconventional um for a guy in his late 30s um but for me it's so i think i've really built it in a way that it works for me and i'm like very happy about that mm-hmm. yeah sometimes it makes dating hard like you know i'll go on first dates with guys and they'll be like wait what you live where you do what mm-hmm. <laughs> i'm like one guy i dated a little bit after the first date was like it was very cute it was like well meaning he was like i still don't really understand what you do for money <laughs> or like how you survive yeah <laughs> so you know um but it definitely uh um it definitely you know feels i i feel more like i'm on the right track now than i ever have in, in my life that's great thank god what a good feeling yeah totally um 
Okay, I want to go back to something mm-hmm. of, of the of your coming out to your parents sure. that day. Yeah, um, and something and what struck me was that you 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 said like the impact of that day is something you're still thinking about and still working through. Yeah, and um, I really just feel that I feel uh-huh. that really hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's hard because you know I didn't really know how my parents were going to react um and that was something once again shout out to my pal andrea um we had a conversation about me coming out about six months prior she was one of the first people that i told and she was like you know you never know how anyone's going to react and she's like, you can't really predict. That was, which was really wise advice. She was like, some people that you think might react really poorly might be great. Some people that you think will be perfectly great about it will react poorly. So, you know, I sort of picked and chose my battles telling different people. And then about a year into the whole process, once pretty much everybody just knew, certain friends who I didn't tell face to face were like, we're kind of, you know, hurt that you didn't tell us. You thought we'd be upset. We're, you know, we are always here to support you. And I realized that I just sort of really arbitrarily like decided to tell. <laughs> like, but with my parents, yeah, I mean, I really didn't know what to expect, uh, except I knew the reaction was going to be emotional because we're an emotional family. Uh, it just is what it is. So, you know, it, but it was definitely my first uh one of my first experiences really having to just maintain my sense of self and know that like I had to really self-parent in that those moments and just be like I'm okay I know I will be okay despite the fact that my parents are behaving like nothing will ever be okay again mm-hmm. which changed really quickly for them yeah 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 I, I you you had said um that there was like casual homophobia and totally. I don't I've never heard it described that way or if I have I don't remember but sure. I think that's a really uh, like spot on way to describe that because I yep. also experienced that at, oh, with like from my parents and mm-hmm. relatives uh, and teachers like you said and yep. um that really informed my decision to not tell them for a long time and and because mm-hmm. I, I, you know, like you said, you cannot predict predict how someone is going to react when you come out to them. And when you're getting those signals of that casual homophobia, it's like, well, data shows that you're probably not going to be as supportive of as I want you to be. That's right. That's mm-hmm. right. The information is there. And yeah. that's why. And this has been such a big change, I think, culturally and something that we need to do so much more work on. I'd say in the last five, six years, words really, really matter. Words matter. Language matters. Everything that you say matters. That doesn't mean that we don't make mistakes and that we can't apologize for our mistakes. There's certain words that I don't use anymore that I used to use because I realized they were hurtful towards certain segments of the population. Uh, and that should be everybody. But I was like, you know, we're both comedians and this is something that I think a lot about in my writing. I really try to never punch down. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important that we don't do that. Um, your producing partner, Jess Ann, yesterday, I just wrote a musical, which I know we're going to talk about. Mm -hmm. And she said, uh, way to take queer representation and put it on stage in a way that's incredibly inclusive and meaningful for people. And it took a lot of drafts to get there. My previous draft of the show, I was trying to be inclusive and celebratory, and it was reading as being like sensationalistic and somewhat, um, some people read it as being a little, um, uh, like, uh, exploitive, uh, exploitative, exploitative. Ex- it's a hard word. I don't know. I'm, I'm saying it right. <laughs> exploitive of the two uh, queer female characters that I had in the show. Um, but I didn't want it to fe- read that way at all. So I just rewrote, 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 and we cut, we cut, and we rearranged and kept, kept giving it gravitas until it felt like a proper relationship to have in the show. Um, you know, um, and uh, there's a lot of people that I don't think want to put in the work to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, like 
Like a friend of mine was defending, who's not a comedian, was defending Dave Chappelle the other day. Mm. And I was like, you don't need to defend him. Like, that's laziness. Mm -hmm. And it's like, yeah, but in his real life, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah, but your stage life and your real life are the same. They are the same. It's it's all encompassing of who you are as a person. It's just like people who are like, oh, well, he's an asshole on the internet, but he's really sweet in real life. No, he's an asshole. Mm -hmm. Like, people who are assholes on the internet are assholes. The end. You know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, yeah. You know, you... There's no... There's, there should be no boundary. There should be no differentiation in those sorts of things, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. I want to, I want to, um, circle us back. Sure. And then I, and then I definitely am, we're definitely talking about your music. Sure. We can talk about the show. Um, I'd love to. (laughs) But, um, I'm still, I still have conversations with my parents too of like, Mm -hmm. because when I, when I came out, they were supportive, which was lucky, but it was, it actually was the things that I'm still working through are from when I was a kid and Uh like me trying to communicate my needs Uh, and feeling like I wasn't being heard Mm -hmm. and, um, uh, you know, and and trying to hold at the same time that my parents were really were doing the best they could. Totally. And that still wasn't what I needed. And yes. that's like a really, really hard thing to grapple with and to negotiate. Yeah. And it's still I it's still things I'm working through. And it's like, do I have I don't know if I want to say I have like trust issues, but I think it's more like if my mom forgets something or Whatever it might be, like I blow up way harder than I probably like how someone would would normally react. Totally, because I feel like I'm not being heard, and I think that that it all kind of ties together. And so it's so, um, it just struck me that you said that you know the impact of that moment, even though things have gotten better with your parents, certainly still colors the way that you still is still part of your fabric. Yeah, and. I also think that that speaks to something universal that I don't think is necessarily a queer experience, but just a universal experience for most people is that we're not the accessories of our parents. And it's really hard for us as children to remember that sometimes. It's really hard for parents to remember that sometimes. And we sometimes don't want the same things, and it means that sometimes we can't deliver what is needed in certain situations. I think that goes both ways. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Um, And my parents as a child were supportive to the best of their ability, I think, um, having never been parents before and I was only child. um, I think they were quite supportive in a lot of really good ways. You know, they instilled in me a love of like art and theater and culture and music that like has really defined my life and that was them and they always supported my you know my geekiness and um and all that stuff uh but then there were certain things that you know I think and this isn't this isn't to rag on them that they just like didn't really know how to process or deal with and um I think that happens to everybody mm-hmm. you know I was in a s- elementary school that in retrospect, I do a lot of teaching artist work, so now I can really say like what a proper teaching environment is and what isn't. And this school was not a proper environment for children to be in. Um, and I was in this school and I was bullied pretty mercilessly. Uh, as for, a teacher? Huh? No, no, no. Sorry, sorry. And uh, as, oh, a, as, I a, got, as a kid, oh, oh, sorry. Oh, I thought you were talking about when you were being a, when you were a teaching artist. Sorry. Okay. No, I mean sometimes the third graders bully me, but I try not to really. <laughs> I try to let it roll off my back these days. Sometimes that doesn't work. Sometimes I'll like sit down after a class and be like, Jesus, that kid really read me. (laughs) He really knew how to get to me. But, um, I, uh, uh, was at a, had an elementary school experience where I was pretty severely bullied and the teachers there, you know, I was very severely bullied and the teachers there didn't really, um, know how to deal with it at all. They, there was no training. I, I don't think they had any training in that late 80s, early 90s. And um, that's also something that I think I'm dealing with in terms of my sense of self-worth and, you know, am I worthy of love? Am I worthy of adoration from people? Am I worthy of give-and-take relationships? Because so many of my time as a kid was spent just being told I wasn't worthy of any of that, mainly mm-hmm. from the kids in my life. Um 
And then at home, my parents were as supportive as humanly possible, but like it never dawned on them to like take me out of the school. Mm. Yeah. And that just was like a leap that they just couldn't quite make in their brains when in retrospect, we all feel like they should have taken me out of the school. And we've had some pretty good conversations about that. And they're like sad about it now. Mm-hmm. And I think have somewhat of a feeling of guilt. Mm-hmm. But I've been very clear with them to not feel guilty that they were absolutely doing their best mm-hmm. and that it's okay. Like it is what it is. Yeah. You know, um, and that it's up to me because I'm an adult to work on those things, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. It's not up to them anymore to keep me safe from sort of the 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 uh, the, the the daggers of my childhood, you know? Well, my mom would beg to differ. Sure, <laughs> she totally. she wants to keep me in a bubble. Well, <laughs> my, my mom would like that too. Yeah, yeah. My mom very often says to me, I wish you were just back in your room playing with your action figures. But like she'd like that for, I think, about 10 minutes. And then she'd be like, <laughs> Go back to New York. I like, know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There, I, I think that there's some feelings of guilt with my parents too, and I, and very similar to what you just said. Of, mm-hmm. you know, I don't want you to feel guilty, but I want you to know that this is how I'm feeling. Yes. And like, let's work through this now as adults. And that's also not a boomer culture thing to do. They were never really trained how to do that. And I think we were trained much better how to speak to those truths while really attempting to not be hurtful mm-hmm. um, and for not to be like an attack. Right. Um, and I think I'm really interested. And I definitely feel like people about 10 years younger than us are even better at that. I think they're really well equipped emotionally a lot of the time to deal with those sorts of things. And I'm really looking forward to sort of like how like – they and the generation that's like 20 years younger than us, what they're going to be like in their like early 30s. I think mm-hmm. they're going to be real woke when it comes to speaking their needs to their families. And I think it's going to be really good for for culture in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm excited for it. I'm really optimistic about it as long as the earth doesn't burn up in a ball of fire. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that is a good point. Yeah. Um, Oh, let's talk about Joey and Ron. Sure, so you, Joey and Ron. Yeah, so you brought uh, – you kind of alluded to it when you were talking about Jesse Ann and saying yeah. – and I, and I want to say I'm very sorry that I haven't seen it. It's okay. I'm going to send you the video for it. Oh, my gosh, yes. Yeah, totally. And if, and if anybody's interested in like maybe producing a new reading of it or a developmental version of the show, we just did a really successful run where we sold – or we we filled eighty percent of our seats, uh, and we turned a profit, which is unheard of for indie New York theater at the Players Theater in the West Village. Uh, so it went super well. So any like prospective musical theater producers that are listening to this, like please you know reach out to me, louisperlman.com. <laughs> <laughs> and I can also send you a video. I can send you our our pitch reel. I can send you demos of the songs, and you can listen to them. But Joey Ron is a project I've been working on for. Uh, a little over six years on and off with my composer collaborator, Joel Escher, who's amazing, um, who you should actually have on the show as well to talk about his coming out experience uh, because it's radic- radically different than mine. Um, and he and I started working on this when he was a really young musical theater composer and I was a young book writer for something like this. It was something that I had never attempted before. And since then, he wrote a really great musical that ended up having a successful run called Farm of Bro. He's working on a really cool show that is about the immigrant experience right now that's called No Place that I recommend you check out as well that's doing some cool stuff around the city. So Joey and Ron is a sugar-sweet 60s bubblegum rock musical uh, that is a absolute tribute love letter to late 1960s kids and tween culture. So it's a tribute to the Archies, the Monkees, bubblegum rock bands from the time, like the 1910 Fruit Gum Company, who were very important to me. And it's sort of a celebration of these unsung heroes of culture who I think contributed something 
very meaningful for a specific group of people, very meaningful, very joyous, uh, very rich during uh, – and at the time, the culture was dismissed as being kitty, as being pablum, as being moronic because it was mainly for young girls. Mm. So we're going to dismiss it as a culture because, you know, it was really – it was the late 60s. So like Led Zeppelin and Cream and, uh, you know, uh, Jimi Hendrix were like really important, you know, musically. So we had to overlook the Archies and Josie and the Pussycats and uh, the Ohio Express and the 1910 Fruit Gun Company. But all that music is really – incredible joyous music and is really amazing it's an amazing idiom to be writing in for musical theater so like the basic plot of the show is it's about a 60s garage band who are living in a small town called oakdale usa they're called ronnie and the sugars and they all kind of resemble archie comics tropes uh you know there's an archie character a jughead character there's a betty and a veronica and a reggie but then uh the Jughead character, whose name is Joey, gets drafted for Vietnam mm. and has to deal with the draft and has to figure out how to get out of the draft because he doesn't really want to fight. And in the meantime, the Betty and Veronica characters, whose names are Tony and Daisy, are in love with each other and can express that to their friends and are using the Archie character, Ron, as basically as a beard. Mm. And they've formed a fake love triangle with him where he's torn between them and they could really care less about him. And they don't feel good about manipulating him anymore, manipulating his naivety or his feelings anymore. So all these issues come to a head during the show when they uh, decide to disguise themselves as a cartoon band and they win a Battle of the Bands competition and go on tour in order to escape their lives in Oakdale, USA and escape the draft board and try to – Joey's trying to escape to Canada and they have a teacher and uh, – a uh, sort of unscrupulous record producer who's sort of hot on their tails who may not have their best interests at heart. And, uh, you know, it's about the sh- big question of the show is, you know, um, what happens when the realities of the late 60s, which are such a poignant, tumultuous time socially and politically, what happens when they interfere with this uh, idealistic bubblegum pop, sugar, sweet, candy-coated world. What happens when the two intertwine? Cool. Yeah, and that's Joey and Ron. Wow. Yeah, man. That sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's really my – it's my great love. <coughs> yeah, yeah. Joey and Ron is my great love. I kind of feel like one of the main reasons I was put on Earth is just to be like a, a evangelist for 60s bubblegum rock. I feel yeah. that. Yeah. Um. So – Quick question. Yeah. Do all like Archie comic spinoff and everything have a city that have Dale in the name in the name? Uh well, Oakdale we named to specifically sound like Riverdale. Mm-hmm. And then there's Greendale, which is where Sabrina takes place. Mm-hmm. And then there's the other one where Katie Keene lives. What's that one called? I don't know if that one has Dale. Against it. We could Google it. Who's Katie Keene? Katie Keene is a very cute, fun model character who sometimes pops in and screws up the love triangle between Archie, Betty, and Veronica. And she's actually getting her own spinoff, which I think is starting this week on The CW, which is going to take place in New York. Which, uh, actually, I'm trying to remember the character. They had an old character from Archie Comics and they made the character trans to be more inclusive, Hmm. which is great. So there's going to be a trans lead on the show. Cool. Which is good. That's great. Yeah. Um, I just Wikipedia'd Katie Keene. Yeah, she's from... I don't... don't, And then I searched for Dale and I couldn't find anything. Yeah, yeah. She's... We could maybe look up where is Katie Keene from. That's a good idea. (laughs) Where is Katie? Um, Yeah, where does she live? I can't remember off the top of my head. It just at New York City. Yeah, well, that's the, <laughs> this new show. Yeah, uh, with Lucy Hale. Yes. Um, yeah, and and, uh, and then all the sh- all the places that were not Oakdale, not all the places, but all the places in my show are fictional, and some of them are plays on. You know, like San Francisco, we called it Golden Gate City. Mm. Uh, New York, the, anal- the analogy 
G for New York was Gothtropolis, mm. which I'm very proud of. Nice. And then there was certain small towns that were named after 60s songwriters. So there was uh, Boyceville and Hartsdale, which are named after Tommy Boyce and Bobby Hart, who were primarily writers for the Monkees in the 60s. Then there was uh, Nairo, North Dakota, which is named after Laura Nairo, who's a big singer-songwriter influence of mine, who was primarily working in the 60s and early 70s. Yeah, so there's a bunch of, like, nods. You know, and there was a bunch more, too, that got cut just because we didn't need them anymore. But there was, like, Nesmith County and Dolansville and Torque, Kansas. Mm. Yeah. I named a bunch of the places after the monkeys. Yeah. You love the monkeys. I do. They're very important to me. They're my they're my dads. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't one of the monkeys on Difficult People? Yeah. Mickey Dolans. Okay. I thought yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's silly. I love Difficult People. Yeah, me too. Yeah, and, and Julie... Uh, Klausner loves the monkeys. So oh, that's cool. why she's a huge monkeys fan. She's been interviewed on several podcasts about the monkeys. Oh, cool. Yeah. Well, we had Shakina on our podcast launch, who was mm-hmm. in Difficult People mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. seasons two and three. Yeah. So that was cool. Who's very good on the show. Yeah. Very good, very funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely. Are there plans uh, for Joey and Ron to get put back up? So now we're in a stage where we have a really good video. We have a bunch of people that saw it that liked it. We have people who are willing to vouch for the show because of that. So now it's really about me looking for opportunities for it. Mm -hmm. So I'm at a stage where it's just about me starting to submit for different, like, developmental residencies, developmental labs, uh, regional theater stuff, um, stuff at colleges, putting it up those sorts of places. And it's just about me beginning to submit for those sorts of things. But... If the show sounds like it's your bag, you know, definitely reach out to me and get in touch because, like, that's what I'm doing right now is literally just, like, taking meetings with people and talking with people about the show and what to do next with it. Because now that we've – we kickstarted the show. Mm -hmm. We successfully kickstarted it, which was wonderful. It was primarily funds from Bubblegum Music fans and from our – uh, from our community of of friends and family, and once now that we've self produced it once, we we can't really self produce it again. Mm. We did that; it was great, it was awesome. Time to move on and do something else with it. But I've been really encouraged. A lot of friends have just been really, really complimentary. And I actually still need to do this. I keep meaning to do this in my apartment. I need to hang up a post it like by my desk that says Joey and Ron is good. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Just to remember that it is a good project and it shouldn't go away, that it Mm -hmm. gave people a lot of joy. And that's important to me. Yeah. Um, It made people happy Mm -hmm. beyond just making me happy. And it made me joyously happy, Mm -hmm. so happy, just sitting and watching it 11 times. Oh, my God. That's amazing. Yeah. It was some of the happiest moments of my life. Yeah. That just reminds me of of being a producer and sitting back and watching Thank You for Coming Out happen in front of my eyes. Yes. Is is that same, like, fills me with so much joy. Especially as Thank You for Coming Out grows Mm -hmm. and you keep seeing the next iteration, the next steps for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's wonderful, right? Yeah. And it feels kind of like a birthing process, right? Well, I wouldn't know, but I, you know. Well, yeah, I I wouldn't know either, (laughs) but I feel like some of my friends had kids and for the last six years I've been having a musical (laughs) child that has been birthed and is like this like sort of messy, tumultuous, exciting, creative experience. Like, here it comes. Yeah. Okay, here's my brain all over the stage for you to enjoy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, which is definitely Joey and Ron. Joey and Ron's the most Louis thing you could ever see in your life. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I really can't wait to see the video. Yeah. Um, yeah, so yeah, it is. It's wild to see. Like, so you were in a show last night and I, yeah. I hosted, so I, I didn't perform, which meant I got to just watch. Mm-hmm. And it is just so lovely to see to see everyone playing together and supporting each other and it doesn't get old. And like, no, and like you said, I don't think thank you for coming out gets old ever. It really doesn't. No. And it, um, this isn't a toot my own horn, but it's like you saying that doesn't even, that doesn't even apply here, but like you like writing yourself a post-it, mm-hmm. um, there have been moments where it feels very overwhelming and it's like, mm-hmm. Why am I doing not, – not why am I doing this, but this is so much work. It is so much work. Yeah, well, when and, you're in the weeds, it can be really exhausting. Yeah. yeah. And so the best reminder for me is to go to one <laughs> is to, yes. and, to re- and that is like the 
ultimate refresher refill of, oh, this is why I'm doing it. And then when I get messages from people are like, thanks for like chatting with me. And I was curious about this, about my identity. And you helped me with that or just being in a space where I felt affirmed. I'm like, this is why I'm doing it. Definitely. You've created a container that is very safe and nurturing for, I think, both uh, queer, LGBTQIA, uh, you know, storytellers and performers, and also all different types of audience members to feel included in the show. And I think that's really important. Um, yeah, and it's the first example of that that I've found in the city. And I've been involved, and I'd love to talk about this just because I think it's interesting. I've been involved in a lot of different uh, queer improv experiences over the years. Mm -hmm. And there was definitely really good stuff about all of them. Like, it's not me dissing them, but Mm -hmm. I can't believe where we started with our thinking about all that stuff, which was early 2000s, and where we're at now, you know, like 18 years later. It's really cool for me Mm -hmm. and very exciting. Uh, and it's better now than it's ever been, baby. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, which is great. Yeah, yeah. So you, um, you had mentioned that there was something called Feathers and Flannel. It was an improv team. So that was—is that the one, the early two thousands one? Yeah, that was my first. That was New York's first ever what we called gay and lesbian improv team, and it was the first one uh, that ever existed. So there was elements to it that were very exciting. And very, uh, very, very exciting, and there was a vibrancy to it that I think really made uh, uh, people excited to see us for mm-hmm. the most part. Um, and it, I think, was, if I remember correctly, three or four men and three women, no one who identified as transgender. That was certainly beyond our realm of comprehension at the time, I would say, and also um, really on a binary when it came to the way they identified um, in terms of sexuality. Mm -hmm. It was like, yes, these are the lesbians on the team. These are the gays on the team. Mm -hmm. And it was a really interesting period for me because this is not of the fault of any of the men on the team, but like we had a run that was like maybe about three months that was every Saturday and we opened for a wonderful all-female improv team called Miss Jackson, who I learned a lot from and I really loved. And we were at the pit and we, it was a Saturday night show and we would play to sold out houses and just rock and roll and have the best time. And I learned a lot doing those shows and feel I was quite successful in them um, for a younger improviser who didn't know what the fuck he was doing. Mm. And then we'd go out and we'd have drinks and like we'd all talk about our lives. And I'd always leave those and like go home and smoke up and eat tortilla chips Mm. and watch SNL and think that I was really lonely mm. and feel really lonely and be like, why do I feel so lonely? Um, like, I'm here in New York doing why I moved to New York, doing – I'm hanging out with, you know, LGBTQ people. Well, I shouldn't even use that term because it wasn't in my brain at the time. Hanging out with gay guys like me who want to do comedy. And and I just felt like they were coming from such a different place. Uh, and that is once again, no fault to them. I just think I was a really different kind of guy, which is why I think I kind of identify as queer now more than anything. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and a lot of the scenes we did in rehearsals were sidewalk cafe gossip scenes mm-hmm. and we would get notes, stop doing gossip scenes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Like it was a different, it was a different time to identify as, you know, as gay. It was really different. The culture the culture was different. The culture I think I've I think I've made my own culture. Me personally, I think I've really drawn from the well of my artistic influences and the stuff that really gets me going. And I think that there's actually a lot of culture recently that I've loved for years and years that I've realized retroactively is queer. Mm. And it's why I've 
I've identified with it, but at the time I didn't realize it was queer, you know, which I think is kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was really a lonely period. Um, you know, and also I just kind of suffer from, and I think that this is pretty universal with a lot of people. I kind of suffer from feeling like I'm an alien on earth a lot of the time. And it, and I have like such deep friendships and such deep familial relationships. And I still feel sometimes like I'm like just a total freakazoid, which I think is something that a lot of different people on like sort of the queer or gender identity spectrum can like identify with. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that is a real feeling for yeah. sure. Um, so how, so how, how long were you on that team and then what was next? What was the next queer team? That's like, a LG, great L- question. LG team. Yeah. Yeah. So <coughs> that was for maybe a year and a half or so before it sort of disappeared um, and we had some good shows, you know, and we had fun and I like those guys. I like all of them. I'm still in touch with them here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, I've done a little bit of work with them here and there over the years. And then, um, uh, and then there was an all, when I was in my, it was like 25 or so. There was like an all gay improv practice group that I did for a hot minute um, I can't even really remember how I got associated with it, but that was with Jeff Marks, who's a cool um, gay comedian who lives in Los Angeles now, who's lovely. And then um, then there was sort of a gap, and then I started hanging tight with my pal Roman Reimer, who was actually really my first um, friend that identified as transgender, and I like was with Roman – like, you know, as a friend with Roman during his transition, um, which was really helpful for me. It was really informative, like, obviously. And then I directed Roman's one-person show that he did that was about his experiences traveling through the South as a transgender person and doing, like, (laughs) advocacy work. And that was in, like, 2009, 2010. Wow. I directed that show, which was a really, really positive experience, I think, for both of us, but very much for me. And then the two of us sort of on a whim were like, let's do a pride show at the Magnet Theater, which is the theater where we both were based out of. And we emailed Peter McInerney, who was the uh, AD at the time, and he immediately wrote back and was like, absolutely, this is a very good idea. At the time, nobody else was really doing it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then what the what the show consisted of was a few variety acts, comedy acts, and Peter was pretty adamant that he wanted different people from the magnet community to be represented. Uh, And then it was an improv set at the end, which was just all the people I could gather that I knew openly identified as some spectrum of LGBTQ. Um, And we just asked everybody and pretty much everybody was really excited about it and said yes at the time and was really happy – for the opportunity to perform with like-minded people, you know, the same culture. And not everything in that show was up to my code of um, inclusivity, um, which was me learning. There was a performer on that show that did this domestic violence joke during his set that mm. I, like, hated. And it made me be like, I I need to take a better rein on who I who I cast or who I schedule if I'm going to keep doing these. Like, mm-hmm. cause like it was so, uh, it was a joke that I consider like for me off brand, like it's off brand from, you know what I'm saying yeah, by that? Yeah, definitely. Um, and for him, it was like <coughs> sort of a very catty, like, you know, it was like, you know, it was like sort of that like gallows camp humor, which I think there's definitely a place for, but I don't think that it sat well with the rest of the show, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so yeah, but the set went quite well. And then one of the people who was in that set was Andrew Fofotakis, who's a lovely, um, uh, queer improviser. And then he started a show called No Place Like Home. I think it was called No Place Like Home, a gay improv event or a gay and lesbian improv event or do you remember mm, let me look because you were you were in it that, mm-hmm. you know um yeah. and we did that for a few years and that was improv based on 
the work of a monologist and featuring queer people in the show. And a lot of people went through that show and were really lovely in that show. And were, was, it was sort of the primordial version of Thank You for Coming Out. Mm-hmm. But I think what really makes the formula stick and why Thank You for Coming Out is so smart and it's what you thought of was making every monologue a coming out story. That's what makes it so celebratory of our experience and like why I think it's so, so important. And I, But I think I'm really proud of all the little building blocks that led up to that. But I think mm-hmm. it needed someone like who came from a different perspective than like me or some of my contemporaries who was a little younger than me or my contemporaries to really like bring it home, <laughs> like drive it to where it needed to go. Yeah. And I'm really happy that it's you. Thank you. <laughs> of yeah, course. I remember. Um, so I looked, it's, uh, there's no place like home, a GL, a GLBTQ event. Oh, good. Um, and I, I'm it, glad we included at least those letters. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I mean, our, the first time I ever performed on a main stage was in that show. Uh-huh. And the first scene I was in was with TJ Mannix. Yes, who's such a treasure. Such a treasure. Yeah. Um, and remembered, I just remember really loving being in that space and was so grateful to you and Andrew mm-hmm. um, for putting it together. And then as we just were talking about, it's a lot of work to do. And yeah, so, yeah. Um, the show retired, and then yeah, sim- sim- in a similar fashion, I approached the Magnet, and yeah. I was like, "We need a Pride show mm-hmm. because there's no place like home has retired. Mm-hmm. There, there are, are none." And mm-hmm. Megan Gray, who was the AD at the time, mm-hmm. um, similar to Peter, was like, "Yes, please do it." Yeah, they've always been really good about that. Mm-hmm. That's definitely shout out to the Magnet, and yeah. that specifically, if you're like trying to reach maybe voices that are more marginalized in our community, mm-hmm. you can like do it. Uh, through uh, the mag- at the magnet, if yeah. you like, have something to say and something good and positive. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So I know. I mean, I got my start because I had got my ideas from you and Andrew, and I also mm-hmm. got a list of email addresses. Sure. So I like it couldn't have happened without the two of you. And oh so yeah. I'm so grateful for both of you, kind <laughs> of giving me your blessing to say, you know, keep this going, keep this alive, ev- let it evolve, and oh yeah, like very. Um, I wouldn't be where I am today without the two of you. So Thank I'm just you. like very, very appreciative of that. It's it's nice to hear. You know, for me, it's nice that I just get to go be in a show <laughs> as opposed to having to put it all together. Yeah, that's very it's fair. It's absolutely lovely. <laughs> well, yeah. and, and the flip side, now that I have a co-producer, yes. it's similarly, it's totally... I can just go and I don't, I'm not doing that particular piece, though I'm still doing lots and lots of things. Yeah, yeah. Um, but But you've been really mindful over it. And it's also because like... You know, I feel like my queerness is part of my artistic identity, but I feel like your brand is like I want to celebrate the voices of, of you know, queer people out in the world. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And I think that it was just a matter of time before a show was put together that specifically had like your drive and passion for it, you know. Because for me, you know, all I really want to do all day is sit on a couch and talk at you about records. So, <laughs> like, it might not be my passion to be always, you know, uh, you know, celebrating the queer and the marginalized. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Well, and it, it is a lot uh, mm. sometimes, but it mm. is it is something that um, keeps me going yes. in all the different ways. Um, okay, so I, I don't want to, but I have to move us into our last segment. I get it. This has been lovely, though. <laughs> so lovely. So this is a rapid fire. Okay. So I'm just going to throw some uh, things at you and just answer as quickly as possible. Okay. Okay. Pencil or pen? Pen. Acting or singing? Singing. Dogs or cats? Uh, <laughs> both. Okay. Beach or mountains? Beach. Meat or veggies? Veggies. Bagels or donuts? Bagels. Nice. Of course. Come on. I mean, some people say don't know. I know. It's okay. Just <laughs> respect. Yeah, respect. Um, train or plane? Plane. Sweet or salty? <sighs> Both. Great. Coke <laughs> or Pepsi? Coke. Night or day? Night. Favorite kitchen item or utensil? Favorite utensil? Uh, spatula. Nice. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> Louie, it's been such a pleasure. Doves, thanks for having me. My, my, it, yes, of course. And um, can you let us know, like, do you want people to follow you on social media? What are your handles? Yeah, my handles for everything are Louie4711. 
And 4711 is the number tattooed on Dr. Frankenfurter's leg in Rocky Horror Picture Show, just to loop it all the way back around. Perfect. I know there's a lot of problematic elements for modern viewers for that film, and it's something we can talk about the next time we hang out. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and um, and uh, uh, you can uh, – uh, my website is at www.louisperlman.com, which gives you like a good overview of like what I'm up to, although I should update it more. <laughs> I feel the same way about my website. Yeah. Uh, Louis, thank you for coming out. Dubs, thanks for having me come out. Yeah. Thank you for coming out. Hey, it's Dubs Weinblatt, your host of Thank You For Coming Out. Thank you so much for listening with an open heart and an open mind. Please subscribe to our podcast on the platform of your choice. And don't forget to rate and review us. It really helps.